So on this wonderful, beautiful uh, 4th of July, I'd like to give a talk I've never given before. It's called The Dharma and Democracy. And what I want to do is to really to, in a way, make the connections between this practice that we do of clarifying the mind, of seeing more clearly, of opening the heart, of bringing that into our daily lives, of acting with more compassion, and connect that with the birthday celebration of this country. And I think that there's something that's um, very, in a sense, even mysterious happening, which is the connecting of um, this practice that we do with a democratic culture. That hasn't happened really before, this practice. And in fact, we could say it hasn't really happened fully with any of the world religions. But this practice that we call the Dharma, or the practice of clearing the mind, clarifying our way of seeing, and opening the heart, how does that connect with being in this, um, this culture of democracy? And sometimes we don't really, in our practice, we focus a lot on the individual. And pra- in, in fact, probably most of the talks that I've given here Wednesday are primarily focused on our individual practice and how we work individually with our patterns of mind, our confusion, our anger. And we we talk about how we bring that out into the world, but the focus is typically on individual practice. And I'll keep that emphasis here, but I want to really make wider connections with what we might call um, the practice of being a citizen, or the practice of being a member of a community, the practice of being a member of society. And it's, um, it's sometimes a place that in this, in, this, in this, at Spirit Rock, sometimes that we don't go there so much. So again, there are, I think, strong tendencies for our practice to be primarily individual, and even, in a sense, individualistic, in the negative sense of just being a way for me to get peaceful. Whatever happening in the world, I will try to get peaceful. And that has its merits and its importance. But if it, it can also be a place of grasping, to use Buddhist language. It can be a place that we get a little stuck. And I think that's a very individual kind of um, question. You know, I know for myself, when I was first practicing, it was just really important. I was in my 20s. I had been an activist. And it was really important for me to be able to actually take the time to come to greater peace and understanding and look. And some of my friends who were activists thought I was just losing it you know, as being escapist or some way. And then, but then I, I really had to, you know, go do that, had to find that space to come to greater peace. But then there was a time when I would come back or come back to that um, connection of my own attempt to work for peace with how I lived in the world and the larger questions. Thich Nhat Hanh, in his book, Being Peace, he talks about how there's something very unique happening uh, in the development of Buddhist practice um, in the world now, but especially in North America and Europe. He says this, I believe that the encounter between Buddhism and the West will bring about something very exciting, very important. There are important values in Western society, such as the scientific way of looking at things, the spirit of free inquiry, 
and democracy. If there is an encounter between Buddhism and these values, humankind will have something very new and very exciting. And that's part of the, um, for me, part of the energy and the inspiration for reflecting on the 4th of July and the birthday of our country. I think probably most of us, I, I don't want to make assumptions, but most of us are either citizens or we have green cards. <laughs> Uh, and in a sense are participating in the life of the culture. So what I want to do is actually talk really in three uh, phases. First I want, to talk, uh, I want to talk about the what I would call the beauty and the wonders of America and democracy. So I basically I want to look at the, really the good stuff, the difficult stuff, and then a vision for how we move forward in the future. So first I want to talk about sort of the beauties, the wonders of democracy, America, and how it resonates with um, spiritual practice. Then I want to talk about um, the areas that need some attention, which may be preoccupying many of us. Uh, or may, There may be a long list for many of us, but the, the areas which need attention um, from the perspective of democracy, from the perspective of dharma, and, and, and how those come together. And again, some of you may not be familiar with the word dharma, but I'll be using that as shorthand for the teachings and the practices of spiritual liberation, of inner liberation. And in, in India, where the word came from, dharma would typically, we would ask, what's the dharma of this particular teacher? And the dharma would be the teachings and the practices. And so there is said to be the Buddha dharma, the teachings uh, by the Buddha about, about freedom and how to get there. And so I'll be using Dharma in that, in that way. So first, some about the, the wonderful qualities of this country and how it resonates with, with particularly with um, Dharma and how it, how it resonates with our practice. And I have to say that for myself, this is a per, my personal story, um, coming of age... Um, during the, you know, the latter part of the Vietnam War and being with a series of presidents that I didn't feel so good about. That's, again, my personal experience. I, th- I feel sometimes that um, I've been really preoccupied with seeing what's problematic about the country. But I think it's really important to really focus on the beautiful and the positive. And I know that, that sometimes I experience that when I've lived in other countries. And I've lived... Um, uh, twice so for a year at a time uh, away from the U.S. And I've also spent, you know, mostly spent time in Europe and in uh, Asia for, for long periods of time. And it, it's sometimes at those times that I really feel that quality of love and warmth for what the country best represents. Um, and when I've, um, when I've traveled in, um, in Thailand, for example, and been at um, gatherings. I've been, I've been at gatherings uh, organized by the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. And we would often, in the evenings, we would have what we call um, cultural sharing or cultural nights. And we basically had people from 30 or 40 countries, mostly from the countries of Southeast Asia. And um, often, I think on all the trips I was there, also my friend Alan Sanaki with, with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship there. And Alan is a musician. And he would play American folk music 
there in the, you know, in the countryside of Thailand, and something just resonated. I just felt, I felt so good. And I've also felt that way thinking, in, when I've lived in other countries, thinking about the value of American breakfast. Uh, uh, it's something that's really, and so, but, I, but I've also reflected that, you know, we find a kind of spirit. Um, like when I look at uh, the, when I hear the, the speeches, for example, of Martin Luther King, even with all his criticism, there's a tremendous love of the country that you can feel coming through. And I wanted to, I wanted to read just one passage where he, he talks. And this is, this is evident, you know, when he talks about, I have a dream. It's really believing in the best of the American dream and really seeing how it resonates in a way with, with spiritual truths. So this is, this is what King said in 1961. In a real sense, America is essentially a dream, a dream as yet unfulfilled. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers and sisters. The substance of the dream is expressed in these sublime words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. And these are the words of the Declaration of Independence, which was submitted right on July 4th, 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the dream. And so it's a, it's a beautiful one. It's a really a powerful, it's a powerful dream. And I think it's really important in whatever work that we do to keep um, aware of the of the positive, of the dream, of the vision. It resonates a lot with our individual practice. What I have found over and over again is that there, in our individual meditation practice and spiritual practice, there are these two main, um, almost like pathways that we do as we work towards transformation. One of them is to uh, work with mindfulness and work to see, basically to see areas of suffering. And sometimes it's a journey into the muck Anyone relate to that? <laughs> when you sit in meditation, um, Trungpa Rinpoche once said that self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> you may disagree about the proportion, but there's a certain amount of... Um, when we actually look at ourselves, some of it we say, oh my God, look at that. And, and we often think, oh, and I'm totally unique in being so messed up. And then as we talk with people, we find it's actually pretty universal, which is a big relief. We can just relax actually with it, that we kind of all have more or less the same conditioning. So part of our practice is going into that, going, kind of going into the stuff which isn't so pretty, and which is kind of hard stuff. But it's also really crucial that we also um, contact our own beauty, our own inspiration, our own vision, that we basically, that we deepen in love. And sometimes we think of a practice here at Spirit Rock as having these two main wings. One is uh, the mindfulness practice, which a lot of which is going into the suffering. And we get it, we come out of it, but there's a lot of it just seeing that. And then there's the, the uh, work with loving kindness, with strengthening the qualities of love, of care, of compassion. And ultimately it's connected with strengthening our sense of wisdom. And so one way to think of our practice is to think that there are these both these, these aspects. 
but it's especially important. And sometimes I know, sometimes people who practice a lot, sometimes we forget really to focus on the positive. Now, some of, some of us may focus on the positive and not want to get into the hard stuff, and that can be a problem also. But there's this way that focusing on the beautiful and the positive is a really crucial aspect to practice. We can ask ourselves whether we have a balance in that way. Um, and it's especially important at times when we're feeling unbalanced to really cultivate that beautiful heart, to go for beauty. Uh, a person whose work I like a lot, Michael Mead, says that in moments of fear, go to beauty. In moments of fear, you could say, in moments of fear, go to beauty. Or we could say, in moments of difficulty and fear, cultivate the, the kind heart, especially towards ourselves. And really, uh, and that's, so it's really, really crucial. And so it's really beautiful to think about that in, um, in terms of the United States. That there's this, I would say, this beautiful experiment of democracy. Very flawed, very problematic, but in a way, it hasn't been done, hadn't been done before on such a scale when things were started. Um, so I'll, I'll read again the, the fuller version of the Declaration of Independence again. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, of course we would now correct all people, are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then it goes on to say right after that, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among human beings, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So from the beginning, the intention was to connect this quality, this democracy with a form of society that would permit uh, happiness, that would maximize the ability to work for individual happiness. You know, so it's not saying the country is here for the king or the queen. You know, it's really giving this centrality uh, to people and this, this, qual- this sense of equality is very, very precious. It relates a lot to, to what we find in Buddhist and I think all spiritual traditions, this sense that when we look most deeply we find a kind of inner spiritual core that's the same for all of us. I think that's parallels with this democratic emphasis on equality. And I think for the founders, they were closely connected. That this sense of equality, and of course, the shadow of the United States is that the equality was very imperfectly um, followed, right? That in the, um, the original people who were able to vote I think in whatever, 1789, who were they? They were primarily, they were basically um, white men with property, right? And we all know that. And in the Constitution, what, uh, uh, African Americans were three-fifths of a person? Native Americans were zero. They weren't even counted, right? And of course, women didn't have the vote. So we could say that this dream was there and that the work since then has been to actually make it real. Certainly Martin Luther King thought exactly like that, right? And so, but it's a beautiful vision. It's, it's actually, the founders were actually all deeply spiritual people. 
And so it's a beautiful vision. There's also the sense that I think is also I want to connect with Buddhist practice, the sense of the power of intention, that, <clears throat> that we can actually design our lives and make choices based on our, our best wisdom and our best compassion. <clears throat> that before 1776, uh, governments were see- not seen as something that we could consciously intend to develop. They were seen more as this is just the way it is. This is divinely ordained. Or this is, you know, this is the way it's always been. But with the, with the other kinds of government, there just wasn't that sense that we can actually say, let us come together and use our best wisdom and then intend to uh, intend what is best in the situation. And there's such a parallel in our individual practice, intention is so crucial. It's actually what creates freedom. We have all this conditioning from the past. We all have all these patterns. And yet with mindfulness and awareness, we actually, what we do is we say, what's happening right now? And we try to be mindful and know what's there. And then we check in and we say, how should I act? Even if we have the conditioning that's saying, you know, it's a really scary situation. Go for your, go for attack, (laughs) you know, or something with a given person. But we check in and with our mindfulness and with tuning into our hearts, we we often can say, I really want to do something else. And we have that space of freedom. And that's really what, why, partly why we do this practice of sitting quietly. It's so we can know ourselves well enough so that we can set intentions and in many cases go against our conditioning. And I would say that on the, on the social scale, that's what the founding of the United States was. It was saying, we've had thousands of years of kings and queens and we, want to, we actually want to do it in a different way. We want to say, let's form a government based on what serves the needs of the people. And, let we, and we'll go against thousands of years of conditioning. So there's something really beautiful about that. And there's something really beautiful in a way about, um, about democracy, I think, that it's, it's, um, it has a lot of parallels, I think, in its, in its full form, in its mature form, with wisdom practices. So democracy is not just majority rule, because there can be majority rule that's very unwise and uncompassionate, right? Just, just, and, and that's why democracy is endlessly capable of being manipulated. Because if it's majority rule, it's, it can be unwise. And so the, um, the core of democracy is actually to have wise citizens, wise and well-informed citizens, because without the wisdom, the good information, they're not going to be good decisions. So, so the, I think the way that democracy is understood is way more than simply a decision-making process about majority rule. It's really about the character of the people making the decisions. And so, and again, we could see the way that democracy has been subverted is that often there's not good information. People aren't well-informed. There's propaganda and so forth. Or the citizens aren't wise. They make decisions based on whatever, how a candidate smiles or something, right? You know, and the elections are often manipulated because you know, they're run basically by the same people who sell us uh, toothpaste. You know, um, <laughs> and <laughs> you know what I mean. 
And, and so how, how, is, how is toothpaste sold? Well, ad campaigns, right? And, and so that's not exactly the spirit of democracy. The spirit of democracy invites uh, well-informed citizens who are wise, who are compassionate, who actually are also committed to looking deeply, to questioning, to critical examination, to, and also to justice. And so all of those, all of those qualities are really uh, central. I mean, again, we can see how, how beautiful they are. And it's, so there's also, I think, that at the heart of democracy is also the quality of being ethical. Again, the starting point for our Dharma practice, you know, and for having our discourse occur with what in Buddhism we call wise speech. Wise speech, as it's unpacked by the Buddha, has to do with being truthful, with being kind and compassionate, with being helpful, and with having good timing. And again, we can ask about, do we have wise speech in our community discourse, in our, in our discussion together? But I think the, the founders thought that democracy had to, had to have that or it wasn't going to work. You have, we have to have a strong foundation in ethics. And so it's a key part of what we develop as we practice that ethics is one of the three pillars of Buddhist practice. And so this, I think you're getting a sense of some of the way that Dharma practice and democracy come together because we get to fill it out and say, well, we really, part of what it means to have citizenship be a part of our practice is really to stress the ethics, is to stress the wisdom and to know that we're, cult- we're keeping on cultivating that as we work. So now for the areas needing attention. It's kind of like we've talked about the beauties, the wonders, the promise, and there's a lot, as we know, that, that needs attention. Um, one way to go right into it is to look at Martin Luther King talked about the wonders of democracy and the wonders of America, but he also said that there are three poisons which are, in a way, distorting the dream, he might say. He, he spoke in the 60s about those three poisons as the poisons of racism, poverty, and militarism. Those were the three that he focused on. It's interesting that we can really make a very strong connection. Buddhism talks about, they actually use the same language. The Buddha used the language of the poisons. He said the poisons are greed, hatred, and delusion. Do you see the parallels? You know, that... that when we do Buddhist practice, we work on really seeing greed, hatred, and delusion in ourselves and transforming it and then helping others to transform. And so when King was talking about these qualities, we can really see in a way how they reflect uh, the qualities of greed, hatred, and delusion. I was thinking of when we think of poverty and the development of a class society you know, it's a lot about greed. It's a lot about some people wanting great amounts and not caring about others. So there's a strong quality of greed there. And there's also a sense of delusion of not feeling the actual connections. Or think of, you know, the, 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 the history of racism. You know, I often think of racism, and particularly in relation to African Americans, as almost like the core wound of America. It's like right at the center, and it's, it's off, you know, sometimes we focused on healing it, and often we haven't very much. 
And, and that is also connected with this very narrow sense of self, you know, as if, you know, as if there wasn't beauty and wisdom in every person. I mean, sometimes it's actually hard to get into the mindset of a, you know, of a very strongly racist person, perhaps. You know, but it's, but it's, you know, it's there when we look, and it's, it's also the, the remnants of it are there in all of us. And so there's this um, quality that we can look at that, again, I think that um, Buddhist practice really asks us to, to look at that. And one of the ways that um, I think we can expand our practice is by really not just asking about how there's individual greed, hatred, or delusion, but how does that take a social form? You know, how do I have um, racism or militarism or um, economic greed in me? How do I look at that? How do I act? And so part of what needs that attention uh, are these areas that this is, you know, in terms of looking giving this very loving inventory of our country. We have to be really clear about that. And the other, the other area that King mentioned is uh, militarism. He mentioned that as a scourge, and it's actually been mentioned from the beginning that there was, there, there's a contradiction. Uh, many people say there's a contradiction between democracy and empire, or between democracy and militarism. Um, this is what Thomas Jefferson said in 1791. If there be one principle more deeply rooted than any other in the mind of every American, is that we should have nothing to do with conquest. 1791. George Washington, 1796. Overgrown military establishments are under any form of government inauspicious to liberty and are to be regarded as particularly hostile to the liberty of our republic. Overgrown military establishment, 1796. And so there's a lot there. There's a lot that there's a lot that we find. One writer who, who I've learned a lot from, named Chalmers Johnson, says that there's this very direct connection between very direct contradiction between democracy and having an empire, having a um, government ruled by militarism. Again, it, it connects in with the, the Buddhist ethical injunction to not be aggressive towards others. This is what Chalmers Johnson said uh, earlier this year. The United States faces a violent contradiction between its long Republican tradition and its more recent imperial ambitions. The fate of previous democratic empires suggests that such a conflict is unsustainable and will be resolved in one of two ways. Rome attempted to keep its empire and lost its democracy. Britain chose to remain democratic and the process let go of its empire. Intentionally or not, the people of the United States already are well embarked on the course of non-democratic empire. Several factors, however, indicate that this course will be a brief one, which most likely will end in economic and political collapse. And so he, in his work, he gives an analysis of that. So it's pretty serious conditions right now, right? And I, I won't go into that. But I want to end with this last part of, okay, given the beauty and its connection, and I hope there's a sense of the connection with our, with our Dharma practice, 
and the problems. And I think we can see how the resources of our looking carefully at ourselves are so valuable for any work that we might do. How do what kind of vision might we have for the, the future? And so I wanted to start with um, uh, something from Walt Whitman. One of the, he's one of the great poets, sort of the, one of the great spiritual poets of democracy. He said this, We have frequently printed the word democracy, and I, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which, this is, by the way, 1871. We often repeat the word democracy, yet it is a word, the real gist of which, still sleeps quite unawakened. Notwithstanding the resonance and the many angry tempests out of which its syllables have come from pen or tongue, it is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. That, that is Walt Whitman from 1871, that the, his, that, that the whole history of democracy still remains to be written. And I think this is the positive vision. You know, for many of us, we, we get overwhelmed by reading the news, and there can often be a sense of despair or depression about what's happening. So I think that's why it's really important to connect with these beautiful visions, the, the dream, the good stuff, and have a keen look at the, the hard stuff. And maybe for many of us, we know the hard stuff, we maybe should spend most of our time on the dream or the good stuff. But, the, but there's a vision which I think is actually really needs a spiritual foundation to manifest. And that's, I think, what's very promising, that there's... Um, I've been most energized over the last 10 or 15 years by meeting people actually from many traditions who have a sense that we need almost like a spiritual renewal to really do this work of making our culture healthy again. Maybe, I don't know about the again, but making it healthier. Let's put it that way. <laughs> that we need some kind of spiritual uh, connection. You know, so, um, someone who I know named um, Stephen Rockefeller wrote a, a long essay on spiritual democracy, really looking for that connection of, um, of practice, of spiritual practice, and being a citizen, and thought that it was vital to the renewal of our country. And what's, I think what's beautiful, like our meditation practice, um, democracy is self-renewing. It can fix itself from within. You know, when, in our meditation practice, we basically say, just keep noticing, just keep looking. And we have this sense that if we actually give good attention to our own experience, there's almost like this organic impulse from within going towards health going towards wholeness. It's something as we do more practice, we come more to trust in that. That there's some, that all we need to do really is to have wise guidance and look carefully and that there's this strong tendency uh, to correct where we're confused, to see where we've been in error, that if we just keep looking, there's a natural tendency for self-correction in meditation itself. Have you noticed that? that you actually, if you just keep looking, you'll notice where you were confused. It may take a while. It may, on the deepest stuff, it may take 10 years. But there's a self-correcting mechanism, and there's that self-correcting mechanism with democracy as well. That the sense of all men are created equal from 1776 has been corrected in many ways. Now we wouldn't say all men. Now we would recognize that that's 
when you define men as white men of property, there's some problems. And it's taken a long time to remedy that, but there's a self-correcting quality. And there's a deep kind of faith that's possible that really can work with it. There's, I want to read this, this really amazing poem some of you know from Langston Hughes. It's called, Let America Be America Again. And I want to read this to you. And this was written in 1938. Langston Hughes, how many people know of his work? It's an African-American poet who died in the 1960s, poet and playwright. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream that dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme nor any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is the air we breathe. There never was equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. He goes back and forth between the, the dream and the reality. But then he ends optimistically. <laughs> he says, oh, Amer- oh, let America be America again, the land that has never yet been, and yet must be, where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negroes, me, who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Oh yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me, and yet yet I swear this oath, America will be. 1938. I think I'll just close by um, let's see I think I'll just close with two readings, both by poets. I think the poets often speak the truth here. Um, one is from, one is really a vision of connecting, uh, connecting Dharma and democracy. And this is from Gary Snyder. He wrote this in 1961, the Buddhist poet who lives in California in the Sierras. He says, the mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three, path, three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality or ethics. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into the mind to see it for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality or ethics is bringing it out, back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the true community of all beings. So wisdom to know your mind and to have a sense of clarity about um, something deeper, be, be, be beneath the conditioning. Meditation, exploring, testing it out, knowing what's really there for yourself. And then ethics, bringing it out. And I think I'll close with uh, something from Walt Whitman. This is from, uh, let me see where it is. This is from, again from the 19th century. And it, um, it, it's a call, actually um, a call to 
spiritual democratic action. Let's see if this resonates with you. It tells, it tells you exactly what you should do. Anyone confused about what to do? <laughs> Walt Whitman tells you right now. Here it is. Actually, from 1855. This is what you should do. Ready? This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves and poems in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all that you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. And your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency, not only in its words, but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. <laughs> so, thank you. <laughs> so, happy birthday. <laughs> happy birthday. So, there's a lot there. Can you read that again, though? Mr. Whitman. Okay, this is what you should do love the earth. And son and the animals despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any man or number of men. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves and poems in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine all you have been told at school or church or in any book. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. (laughs) And your very flesh shall be a great poem. And have the richest fluency not only in its words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. Yeah, you're welcome. I think what he's really pointing to, if I could could end with this thought, and it's a way to bring together some of what I've said, is that it's really um, a healthy whole person asks for a healthy whole culture and society. And you can't have, the other side of it is you can't have a healthy culture and society unless you have really healthy whole people. And so each of us will work on different parts of this. Some of us will, you know, primarily work to make ourselves healthy. And then that'll be a natural example to others. And some others of us will, will really want to help develop better ways that we work together, develop better, better ways of, of teaching, education. Some of us will want to work to develop better health care systems, better medical systems. Some of us will want to protect the earth, you know. But I think it's this connection between the, um, the inner work that we do and the outer work that is really being invited. And that, for me, the 4th of July just really calls that forth. It really says, 
Um, yeah, how how do I how do I live most happily and healthfully? And does that need for me to also be in a happy, healthy community? And can I just turn my back on the community and just look for personal health and well-being? Or do I really need to also do both? So that's, that's all. I'll leave us with that. So thank you for the second reading. I invite some. So, so what I'd like to invite right now <coughs> is just take a, a moment or so, just personally, individually, and see what may have resonated from my talk with you. Any inspiration, any questions, any concerns? Just where your mind and heart go. Maybe let's, let's turn to a person next to you. And I want to just take maybe about eight or ten minutes just to have us each, maybe each of you take three or four minutes to say what came for you. And we'll do that with uh, a group of two. So if you could find, find a person right now. And let me give, um, if I want to do this uh, fairly briefly so we can have some time together to talk. But if you can just um, have one of you volunteer to go first, raise your hand, one person in each group. Okay. And if the first, let's just take about three or four minutes and I'll, I'll ring a bell when we're going to switch. And we'll just have each person say what may have come up for you, what may have come up for you from the talk. Then we'll switch, and then we'll come back to the whole group for a while. And if you want to use the time a little differently to just talk among yourselves, that's fine too. But I'm suggesting that model. So we'll take about um, eight minutes on that. Okay. And, and I'll ring the bell when it's time to switch. Um, um, yeah. But then let's turn it on. Again, for the, why, don't you, why don't you leave it on? Because we'll just, we'll just, uh, we'll turn it off and then turn it back on for the questions when we come together. Is that okay? So. so we have a little time for the in the whole group. Was that helpful with the the one-on-one? Yeah. Maximizes um, wisdom. <laughs> So any, any reflections or thoughts or something that came unexpectedly to you or anything you'd like to share with the whole group or ask a question to me? Please, uh, Marty. Well, my, my partner brought up that this idea of wholeness and the importance of wholeness uh, of every individual 
becomes the, the ground the groundwork that's necessary for a wholeness in the society and that the founding fathers were actually very much afraid of the whole mob because they were afraid that that opening up this idea of democracy mm -hmm. to um, to the whole rabble mm -hmm. um, would kill it, would mm -hmm. destroy it. So then the charge and the mission becomes one of how do you bring wholeness and and uh, individual um, wholeness to every human being so that that can then feed and create the, the dream, the vision mm -hmm. which, uh, of a whole society. Mm -hmm. and, and, and for me, I want to be able to see what is whole about every every person I encounter, every person that I meet and relate to that kernel of wholeness. Mm -hmm. And with, with the hope and the dream that by relating to that, that will flourish a little bit more and grow a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It is a daunting thing, but it's a wonderful thing, and I thank you very much mm -hmm. for this incredible mm -hmm. quick talk. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Marty. Yeah, and I, I think actually at the beginning, my understanding of the beginning of this country is that there was actually an inner tension between some of those who were more elitist and others who more valued the, the larger community. So I think there's always been that inner tension. Uh, so I don't think it was quite so, um, I think it was mixed, a mixed picture. Yeah, that's my understanding. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, but, but it's really, um, but it's expanded, hasn't it? I mean, the, you know, uh, that, um, the sense that all can participate. You know, it's really been, it's really been part of that dream aspect, or that even the, you know, even the, I would say it's part of, part of the beautiful quality. I was thinking of the symbol of the Statue of Liberty, you know, which I know when um, uh, the, the Buddhist magazine Tricycle did a, a special issue on politics, and I actually had a contribution to that a few years ago, at the time of the 2004 election. And they chose to have, like, uh, I think it was like uh, Quan Yin with the Statue of Liberty, <laughs> like that. You know, imagine Quan Yin over here with the, uh, uh, but it's a beautiful symbol because it's actually, you think about it, it's actually very much like Quan Yin is she who hears the cries of the world. And Statue of Liberty is very much like that. It's, it's like, it's a welcoming of strangers. Uh, it's, you know, I know my ancestors went through, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, it, that's in question right now, right? Yeah. But it's, historically, there's been that beautiful quality of really welcoming strangers, welcome, you know, my ancestors came to this country, you know, fleeing violence and oppression, you know, and it's, uh, and they were welcomed, you know, even though they didn't have any money, right? And that's, that's been part of the uh, beauty, right, here. Um, so, uh, Sarah, you had something. Oh, no, I don't know. Okay. So, other, other thoughts, please. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what I didn't say was how much I appreciated the talk mm -hmm. and the uh, care with which you interwove so much um, wisdom 
uh, what came up for me in the talk was um, a, a, a phrase that a, a person used at a recent 50th anniversary of two churches coming together 50 years ago. And at that time I was 14 and it was all, it was very controversial about whether these two churches could blend their, hmm. their backgrounds and um, whether or not to use grape juice or wine for communion. <laughs> 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 Curiosity. I wanted to go to the 50th anniversary, and what I came away with from that was this phrase that this woman bishop used at, at the end of her talk, which was something along the lines of, uh, these days there's a great um, longing for peace. Hmm. And, um, and uh, my words to you are, um, it's important that there are times to disturb the peace. And mm -hmm. I call to you to disturb your own peace if you are becoming attached mm -hmm. to peace <laughs> within. And, mm -hmm. uh, I, disturb the peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that came up for me as well as in that same week. I don't know how I may have not put this together sooner, but my own first grandchild is turning one this week, and his father, and therefore he also, mm -hmm. Uh, is a descendant of slaves. And I thought, if people hadn't had the courage uh, to pay attention to what disturbed their soul, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my grandson would not be free. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I was thinking, uh, some of you know Dorothy Day, the uh, founder of Catholic Worker. She had a phrase which was, Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. <laughs> uh, you could translate. <laughs> but I think, uh, I, I think um, for what should we say, afflict the comfortable in a compassionate way. <laughs> Please. I was, we were talking about meditation and learning anew at meditating. Mm. And so then it gets down to. The self-correcting notion, yeah, and then it gets all the way down to well, you know, when you're, you're raised, if you're raised with certain things like maybe don't gossip about other people, maybe mm -hmm. say prayers, maybe. So when do you teach children to meditate? When you know, like maybe you come to your mm -hmm. meditation with certain inalienable truths or whatever. Or, yeah, you know, so that might help a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean when you're switching into it or Yeah. It's a good it's a good question. It, it's I think you know meditation is a a tool, a practice, a technique, but in a sense what we're what we're cultivating is awareness and wisdom and an open heart. And meditation is one important way to get there. Uh, but in a sense, and that's, that's why I think what, we, what we're basically, when we talk about the self-correcting nature of meditation, we're basically talking about the long-term purifying power of awareness. That awareness itself tends to purify and come to wisdom, especially if we have a little bit of guidance. But awareness itself has great power. That's why when we teach and have people do long retreats, we basically, all we care is that they're basically continuing to be aware, and they don't get st stuck in some, you know, some hard place. 
And so with a child, anything which brings about more awareness, more wisdom, more compassion is going to be a preparation for formal meditation. So just to, you know, help a child to really look carefully at a tree is going to be really connected to that. Or to, um, you know, sort of cultivate the the natural um, empathy and compassion of as, as a child is it's going to be completely continuous. I think I think it do, I think we're kind of experimenting in terms of the age when people do formal meditation, but historically I think it's been something usually people don't in in um, Asian cultures and Asian Buddhist cultures I don't think they do too much formal meditation until they're ten or eleven or twelve, typically. I mean they may do some you know and I you know I've known I've sometimes sat with two year olds or three year olds and they. They like to, you know, tune into the vibe, right? <laughs> you know, and kind of catch it. But it's, uh, does that help some? Thank you. Yeah. Maybe we have time for one more short one and then we should finish. Please. Um, my mother's a Native American and our, yeah. in our newsletter this month, it said that the Air Coast Nation helped frame that. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, um, what I was thinking, thank you very much. I thought this was beautiful. Mm. And uh, I, I love the, what the ideal is, mm-hmm. you know, what we're going towards in Buddhism, in this declaration. And in my work, I work in the criminal justice system, and a lot of my job is explaining to people what's happening in the system. Mm-hmm. And people are generally upset because charges are filed, or charges aren't filed. Mm-hmm. And they generally say there is no justice. And uh, I explained to them that that's the goal. Sometimes it may even almost be met. Yeah. But so I can see how it relates to yeah. Buddhism. And yeah, there's something beautiful there, and the system is imperfect. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's not that different from meditation, because have you ever noticed that we're imperfect? <laughs> well, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> you may, you may be, you may. Be. I'll, I, I'm imperfect, and uh, but yeah, but we still can really be guided by what matters. And I love. Maybe actually, I'll close. I had actually had brought in some material from the Iroquois today, but I um, because of time, I didn't use it. And also from the Winnebago, in. Uh, more in the near, up near Minnesota, Canada. And maybe I'll see if, I, if this is a good one to close with. I have, I have kind of like a, a, almost like a peace, a peace poem from the uh, Iroquois, because it's true that the, I think there have been books written on this, but the roots of the U.S. Constitution are in significant part in the um, um, practices of the Iroquois in uh, New York, what's now New York State, Southern Canada, the Iroquois Confederation. And maybe I'll, I'll close with this and we can, can sit with it. But this is a, a reading, a short reading. This is supposedly dated from 1450 from the Iroquois. It's called The Tree of the Great Peace. So I'll close with this for, for today. I plant the tree of the great peace. 
Roots have spread out from the tree of the great peace, the great white roots of peace. Any man of any nation may trace the roots to their source and be welcome to shelter beneath the great peace. You can think of this as a parallel, like teachings from other cultures, like Buddhist teachings of the great, it's also talked about the great peace, right? So this is, this is, so any person of any nation may trace their roots to their sources and be welcome to shelter beneath the great peace. I and the chiefs of our five nations of the great peace, we now uproot the tallest pine. Into the cavity thereby made, we cast all weapons of war. Into the depths of the earth, into the deep underneath, we cast all weapons of war. We bury them from sight forever and we plant again the tree. Thus shall the great peace be established. So let's just sit for a minute or so to finish. So inviting what may have resonated from this morning. And let it be present. And also invite any intentions for yourself that come out of the morning. And we'll just stay for a little less than a minute. So knowing that we practice, um, not just for ourselves, but for others as well, we dedicate the fruits of the morning for the well-being and happy birthday of all beings in this country. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.